Greetings, family, and welcome to The Journey Continues, a Cities United podcast. My name is Anthony Smith, and I'll be your host each month as we take this journey together to reimagine public safety. Cities United is a national network that supports mayors, community leaders, and young leaders from all across the country who are committed to creating safe, healthy, and hopeful communities for young black men and boys and their families. On each episode, you will hear from key stakeholders from throughout our network who will help us examine the issues that impact young black men and boys' lives, while also helping us identify key solutions and best practices that will help us reimagine public safety and truly create spaces that are safe, healthy, and hopeful for all. Wow, 10 years in the making. It's hard to believe that Cities United has been around since 2011 and that it started with a conversation with Dr. Barrow and Mary Nutter. Over the 10 years, we have partnered and worked with thousands of folks all across this country who are committed to creating safe, healthy, and hopeful communities for young black men and boys. So on today's episode, you will hear a conversation with Dr. Bell, Mayor Nutter, Mayor Landrew, and Sean Dove that really talks about the origin of Cities United, how it started, and their charge for how we move forward. This conversation was taped in Knoxville, Tennessee in 2018 and still relevant today. So we wanted to make sure that we brought it back to the network so that you all can hear it and then celebrate with us. Please enjoy. So, Uniting Leaders for Change. What a great place in the Change Center to start this conversation, the theme of the conference, and to begin to see, thank you, Wilhelm. That's the box. Can you tell? <laughs> and, and to see how Cities United is unfolding and growing to see the fellows that was an idea on paper years ago. Where is Leon? To see, see that was on paper when Leon and I were taking what they told us to put down on paper and figure it out. And to have 130 mayors when we had two. <laughs> two good ones, by the way. <laughs> and to have all the the, the city leads and the city lead labs. So in 2011, as you heard from Anthony, there was a conversation between Mayor Nutter and Dr. William Bell, CEO of Casey Family Programs, Mayor Nutter, then mayor of Philadelphia. And today we're gonna have a dialogue with the family, what was happening, what got here, and what trying to go, their vision, with some charges to Anthony as well. In terms of, you can see, this feels like it's going in and out. Am I going in and out? Right. So let me bring up our founders, Mayor Nutter, Michael Nutter from Philadelphia, Mayor Mitch Landrew, New Orleans, Sean Dove, Open Societies Foundation, and Dr. William Bell. That's my seat. <laughs> Sean Duff, I'm sorry, campaign for black male achievement. <laughs> so, um, Mayor Nutter, with you, because uh, the conversation started with you, right? And you had a conversation, I'm sure you were having other conversations, but you had a conversation uh, with Dr. Bell early in 2011. 
since April of 2011. We were doing our timeline today. Oh, okay. It was April oh, of 2011. Yeah, you, you, you know, I'm younger. <laughs> <laughs> I think. <laughs> and um, talk to us about what was happening in Philadelphia at the time and, yeah. and what that conversation was and why you asked Dr. Bell to come to the table. Sure. Um, thanks, Antoinette. And Anthony, thank you. Um, and Althea and the entire Cities United team, and certainly all of you um, young people and folks who are young at heart. Um, you know, Philly, uh, so I've been a member of Philadelphia City Council uh, for 14 and a half years, ran for mayor, all that story. And in the early 2000s, while I was still in the council, a number of other cities across the country, their homicide rate was going down. Uh, ours was still uh, going up. Uh, it was one of a couple of reasons why I ultimately decided to run for mayor uh, in the first place. So it had been an area of focus. Uh, we had some early success, uh, actually, in driving the numbers down. But, you know, I think, as we all know, one shooting, one homicide is just one too many. And even though we had had some success, um, you know, it's hard. It's just really, it's hard to be excited about, you know, well, we had some success and we only had, you know, 331 homicides last year, or 302 or 306. And, I mean, again, it was kind of going in that direction, but, you know, Dr. Bell and Casey Family Programs have been strong supporters of a number of initiatives in Philadelphia, especially over on the Department of Human Services side, and you know, Vanessa Garrett-Harley is here, been our commissioner, and Anne-Marie Ambrose uh, before her. And we just started talking uh, about our lives and who we were as individuals, who we were as black men, where we grew up, different things that, that we had done. And it was a particularly, uh, I would say, uh, personal conversation. It became somewhat of an emotional conversation. Uh, and at the end, it was like, all right, you got these two guys and, you know, a little misting in the eyes and we have these positions and, all right, well, now what are we going to do? And it was like right there. We said, well, we have to take this to the next step. And how are you going to devote your resources and, you know, where is this going to go? And in the meantime, through, um, you know, U.S. Conference of Mayors and a number of other um, organizations, uh, Mayor Landro and I had become friends um, and like brothers. And then we realized that, um, not on purpose, uh, but we had basically almost kind of been giving parts of each other's speeches uh, at a variety of events, talking about crime, talking about violence. And the mayor is even more passionate, certainly, than me and, and, and a better speaker. Um, and we said, well, we need to work on this together. Right? So you got a, you know, a northern black mayor and a southern white mayor. And we said, well, this is a great team. Uh, it's like, you know, two-thirds of the Mod Squad, and, you know, we're, 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 we're uh, young people, you can look up the Mod I Squad. Wanted to, I wanted to be Link. Yeah, right, right. Well, I would have been if I had hair, but, you know, it just, like, didn't work out. So, um, we, so you know, kind of back to Dr. Bell and said, all right, I've got a, I've got a partner, we've got a thing, we're going to make this happen, and the two of us are going to, you know, r run out here and, and try to make something happen. And, you know, six, seven years later, here we are, 130 uh, cities later. But it, it's always been about the violence. Um, 
you know, the most important thing any of us will ever do is make our city safer, save lives, and make sure the people are secure. All the other stuff, the buildings and the monuments and all the other activity, I mean, great, you know, but folks got to be safe. Well, I also recall you talking at the time about how much you were spending on public safety. Sure. And the inability to spend it so, on the So, you know, so I've, I've been out two and a half years now, but, you know, it's probably about the same. Uh, we spent about a third, 30 percent or so of the city's budget on public safety. Um, police, prisons, DA, courts, probation, and parole. That's before you pick up a bag of trash, it's before you put a basketball uh, through a hoop, put a drop of water in the swimming pool or anything else, 30 percent, to basically chase around what amounts to about 2 percent of the population uh, of the entire city that is actively involved in criminal or negative activity, 2 percent of the entire population, and we spend 30 percent of the entire city budget chasing people around all day long, revolving door, in, out, in, out, it's all the same folks. Uh, who are also running around shooting and stabbing and killing uh, each other. Um, they might not be friends, but they know each other uh, in a variety of ways. And that just, I mean, that just humanistically and economically makes no sense either. So we had to do something different. So, William, you said yes. So, um, you know, want to know why you said yes. Um, and also in the context of the questions we often get in philanthropy or the challenge we, we, challenges we often get in philanthropy about staying in your lane, right? And we're a foundation that focuses on um, providing, improving, and ultimately preventing the need for foster care. How does this violence reduction connect to that? Well, for me, and I don't know if this is on, actually project a little louder than this, but um, I think. It's on. Okay. For me, these were our children. And that was my lane. Always has been and always will be my lane. But it's also that when you think about the life of children before they come into foster care, the life of children while they're in foster care, and the life of children after they come out of foster care, in large measure, these are some of the same children. And I'd watched too many children die. And there's a stain on my heart for a young man about 16 years old that was in foster care and couldn't get out because his mama wasn't ready for him to come out. And he felt alone in this world. And I watched this young man tear up my office on multiple occasions because he was getting his anger with his life out. And he didn't understand why his life was this way. And he would run away frequently. And I would leave my house in the middle of the night to go into the streets of Brooklyn, New York to find him. His name was Frederick Brooks. And then I got a phone call one night. Frederick represents to me every one of these children who should not have to be sentenced to die in the streets. 
no matter what the city is. And prior to coming to Casey, I'd worked for the mayor of the city of New York. And I'd watched this mayor decide that something needed to be done. And then I watched him make the decisions and discharge the resources and add things to the budget and advocate for those things at the state and federal level in order to ensure that the resources to make that change that he was interested in occurred. And so for me, having the CEO of one of the largest cities in this country say that he was ready to make this real for his children, our children, there was no way I could say yes. And we were also at a time in Casey Family Programs where we had talked about a strategy for America's children beginning in 2006, which was about reducing the number of kids in foster care. It was about improving life outcomes for those children and their families. And it was about changing the financing structure so that you didn't have to just use federal dollars to pay for foster care, but you could use federal dollars to pay for life care and well-being for children, families, and communities. And around this same time, we were having an epiphany to, to the question, what good would we have done if, thinking about Frederick, if we got 14 and 15 and 16-year-old young men out of foster care and they're back in their community, but there's been no change in the community. And two years later, after getting out of foster care, they're found face down with a bullet in the back of their heads in the middle of the street. So for me, it was because I understood that if something was going to change in this area, it was only going to change when the CEOs of cities decided that every child in their city was worth the life opportunity that other children in their cities were getting. And I have come to believe in the capacity and the will of human leadership that says, when we really decide that something needs to be done, it's going to be done. And unlike the history of philanthropy, I don't care how many grants you give and what you have decided is the solution as a foundation. If the CEO of that city hasn't decided that that is the solution that they want to implement, that is not going to work. And so I, I believe wholeheartedly that if we're going to stop children from dying, then the CEOs of cities around this country are going to have to decide that it is no longer acceptable for some census tracts in their cities, for some zip codes in their cities to be left unto themselves. And others are allowed to prosper. And so. I found soulmates, and I don't mean that in the way my wife thinks I mean it, but um, I found soulmates who believed that it was time. It was time to do this in the South. I was born and raised in Mississippi. The police brutality and black men and boys dying and overrepresentation of men of color in prisons didn't start a decade ago or two decades ago. And if we want to change these conditions that we have, we've got to have real serious reconstruction 
of the world that we've allowed our kids to live in. Thank you. So, Sean, at the time you were in philanthropy, you now are not, but you were at the Open Society Foundation creating a beacon for many of us in the philanthropic sector with the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, fueling, just fueling the sector with a focus on African-American male achievement. So we, we can guess why you said yes, but what was different? I mean, you were, you were investing in a number of efforts across the country. What was different about Cities United and why did you want to see Cities United come about? Well, and I want to start off, I want to shout out Anthony and uh, his team and just listening to you and how far the organization has come. I want to say how proud I am of you and uh, the rest of the team. And uh, so a, a couple uh, answers to that, Antoinette, and uh, a lot of it has to do uh, with uh, uh, leadership. And uh, one of it is uh, when one or two uh, mayors are gathered, uh, <laughs> like uh, Mayor Nutter and Mitch Landau, it's hard to say no. Uh, one of the things I really loved about working at the Open Society Foundations and launching the campaign for Black Male Achievement was that they gave, not only me, but gave philanthropy uh, the space and the freedom to be unapologetically black, that we were invested in black men and boys. And we were originally supposed to be a three-year campaign. You know how sometimes philanthropy will take a generational, centuries-long issue and uh, say, so we're going to solve this uh, uh, in three years. and. Um, a pivotal point during that three-year term was at a board meeting, right? You know, what the difference a board meeting can make and live, working for a living donor. Uh, and George Soros said, I like what I see. Uh, we really approached this work. It was my first foray in philanthropy, right? And probably my last, no. Uh, <laughs> that we approached this as community organizers, as community builders, and we built community. And uh, he said, I like what I see. I want to take the term limits off of um, your three-year term and triple your budget. And one of the first grants that we made during that time, um, and I heard that Leon Andrews is in the room. He's uh, back there. was through the National League of Cities. And we made an investment in the National League of Cities to uh, invest in municipal leadership around this work. And we identified 11 cities. There were like 30 uh, applications. And it's so important for a city to make a declaration around black men and boys. And these cities declared themselves BMA cities. And so that was the precursor. And then when the opportunity to invest in Cities United came about, quite frankly, the pushback I got at the foundation is like, where is this on your priority list, right? Uh, where does uh, uh, this fit? And as Dr. Bell uh, shared, you know, where there's a will, uh, there is a way. And I knew that I was just passing through. I knew that I was blessed with position, with resources, and that it was my responsibility to find a way to resource something like Cities uh, United. And I saw the leadership that was involved, and I convinced the foundation that we are going to make uh, an investment in this. And sometimes when you're in philanthropy, you gotta put you know, these six important grants up here that they wanna fund right here. 
and we just slid Cities United right in, and uh, it became uh, uh, institutional um, in, in, in doing the work. Thank you. So, uh, Mitch, you have um, really used your voice as a white mayor stepping up, stepping out to talk about race and talk about racial disparities in ways that others do not. You white? <laughs> He's from Louisiana, so, it, you know. It, it, took me three, it took me three years to find <laughs> not, out that he was white. way. <laughs> you never told me that. Oh, yeah. Lordy, here we go. I got my, <laughs> Why did I we're gonna start you our comedy show right now. Right, right. <laughs> Been holding out on me all this time. Particularly for you know mayors who have a hard time, white or black, have a hard time um, putting uh, black men and race in their narrative. What was your journey to get there? You know the courage that it took, the ch the, the pushback and the blowback that you got. Thank you for that question. Th welcome, everybody. Thank you for having me, all the mayors. Um, the entire Cities United team, y'all are awesome. And I'm, I'm so proud of you, and I know Mayor Nutter is too. You know, when I, when I got elected in uh, 2010, you remember that the city was on its back. I mean, Katrina had hit. I mean, the whole city had just gotten destroyed. 500,000 homes hurt, 200,000 destroyed. We lost 1,400 people. We were rebuilding everything. and. Even when a city's not being rebuilt like that, the mayor's job's really hard and you got a thousand things to do. And everything's important and everything's an emergency. Any one of the mayors can tell you that. But I was like Mayor Nutter and uh, I was struggling every day with the daily phone calls that I would get from my police chief. And I would get it, I, I instructed him, every time somebody gets shot or killed, call me. And it happens every day. Wake up in the morning, you know, my Blackberry's on my chest and I don't have a Blackberry anymore. <laughs> I, I do have an iPhone. Um, but, 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 the, but the message is, Mayor, sorry to inform you that last night at 3 o'clock a.m. on the corner of, pick a corner anywhere, uh, we arrived at a scene, found a young African-American face down, three bullet holes in the head. There are no witnesses, even though there were 100 people around. Or something worse. And you know, it, it, when you're the mayor of a city, you are, are the shepherd, you are the pastor, you are, if you are a good mayor, you are on the ground all the time, every day, you are at funerals, you actually show up on the scene. You can see young men, forgive me for being this, this blunt, but with their eyes rolled back and their tongue hung out and lifeless with bullet holes in them, of course, with hundreds of people around, usually babies, looking, seeing a neighborhood traumatized. And you, and you get this, this, this sense of complete senselessness of the taking of lives. And I told my team, you know, we're going to rebuild this city. We're going we're gonna to fix the streets. We're going to put the playgrounds back. We're going to help the faith-based community get back. We're going to rebuild the schools. I said, but we will never be a whole city if we don't stop young men from being killed. Now, I said it that way. I didn't say young men from killing. I said young men from being killed. Because with all of the um, upset, which is all justified, about the pipeline to prison and the criminal justice reform and police community relations, all of that justified, important, critical, in my mind, I wasn't hearing as much defense of why are so many young African-American boys being taken from us in exponentially high numbers. And so, like every man, I'm a problem solver. And I'm like, 
I don't I just don't understand this. Tell me what's happening again. And of course, all of you know the numbers better than I do, but since 1980, about 640,000 people have been killed on the streets of America. That's more human beings that have been killed, soldiers, in all of the wars, all of the wars of the 20th century and the 21st century. And of course, you know the African-American population is only about 10% of the country, and African-American men are about 5%, but they're 40% of the victims. And so when we started drilling down on this, we, you know what I know is that 90% of the individuals, they know each other. So this just seemed insane to me, because I have children too. But when I looked at these young men, I saw my sons. And I saw the, the, the life of the city being sucked out of it. And it occurred to me that nobody cared about black boys. And that we couldn't go forward as a city if we didn't care about black boys. It was really just as simple as that. And it turns out, in my, in my agony, that, that Mayor Nutter and, and Dr. Bell were experiencing. I was going through the same thing, and we were at a conference of mayors. We started talking about this, and I started listening to his speeches. He started listening to mine. We could just as soon give the same speech. If you listened to the speeches we gave, you wouldn't know which one of us gave the speech. I was talking about New Orleans. He was talking about Philadelphia. But you have an accent. No, he's got an accent. <laughs> we got po' boys. He's got nasty sandwich, some sandwiches. I don't know that. We both good-looking ball-headed men. <laughs> that, that kind of little Amen. ebony and ivory going on. So in, in any event, we start talking about how insane this is and, 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 and fancying ourselves both as problem solvers. We say, you know, our cities just cannot, we cannot move forward. We're going to stop on this. And so my Deputy Mayor Judy Reese-Morse is here and Dr. Franklin Lorio is here who helped me conceptualize a program that we call Normal for Life. I think yours was Philly Rising. Am I remembering that right? Well, we individually started coming up with a comprehensive plan to address very, very specifically and very, very purposefully black boys. And we said it just like that. We didn't say criminal justice reform. We didn't say school to prison pipeline. We said black boys, African-American boys, boys of color. We want to stay focused on that. Not that the young ladies didn't need help as well. But we wanted to really kind of get to this idea that their lives were very valuable. They were worth putting on a pedestal and saying, we're gonna put you first and we're gonna find a way to get that done. And by the way, this seems like a solvable problem because it hasn't always been this way. Now I won't take up too much time, but I wanna talk about a word. The pastor used it earlier, he said culture. Now I got in trouble for using this word early on because I used the word culture of violence as opposed to a culture of death. And people took that the wrong way. And I said, no, in its, in its essence, culture is patterns of behavior that form over time that replicate themselves that cause a consequence. It could be a good culture, a bad culture. It could be in art. It can be in behavior. And a pattern has developed where young men, for thousands of different reasons, have decided to, to exercise anger, frustration, at whatever, at people they know by killing them with a gun mostly. It does not have to be that way. You can actually interrupt violence if you treat it like a public health threat. And so we really made it our first priority. And what happened was when I found Mayor Nutter, or when we found each other on this issue, he said, look, I'm already talking to folks about this. He was talking to Dr. Bell. And the only way we're going to make this happen across the country is to invite other people uh, into this conversation. Both of us recognize uh, what was said earlier by Mayor O'Hara, that you can't do this alone. It's got to be the government faith-based community, not-for-profit sector, everybody's gotta be in. But at the end of the day, just to, put, just to lay it out there, if we don't value the lives of African-American men, 
that it's not going to happen. And that really is was the focus of my administration to say we cannot be a city without their value. And finally, just to put a finer point on it, statistically, because the president's saying life is really good because the unemployment rate is down, especially among African-American men, which he says is the best in the world because of him. But be that as it may, when you look at that number, maybe broadly, that's one thing. But when you look specifically, like in the city of New Orleans, 42% of African-American men are not working. And that's true across very specific zones, zip codes, all across this country. And so you've got to get to the root of the problem. And I think Cities United is the umbrella to help us do that. And I'm thrilled with the work that you guys have done. And thank you for stepping up to the plate. I'm going to push you a little bit. In a positive way on the voice you used and in the spaces you used the voice, your voice, as, as a white mayor. Where you were you pushing me where? To, Which answer, one, oh, the to answer that question. <laughs> well, this, I don't. We don't have enough time for me to explain the whole thing to you. But from the second, I mean, before I was born, uh, my my father was a uh, young white legislator back in 1960. He is one of only two legislators that stood up and told our governor, who was like the national George Wallace, but his name was Jimmy Davis, that he was not going to be in favor of keeping the school segregated. I was in utero at the time. He had his life threatened that day. Our entire life we've been involved in in, a, in the fight of civil rights so it, it wasn't anything that was new to me when i became mayor i'm like mayor nutter you're sitting there you're the mayor there is nobody else to look to like if you're not the mayor all of y'all are taking yell at us you say y'all the mayor y'all should do something well when you're the mayor you're looking in the mirror going you should do something <laughs> you should work on that <laughs> because you can't you kind of can't walk away from it i mean like if you don't do it like you didn't do it and, and like you said earlier on about the budgets, we make, I mean, we propose the budgets. And so if you walk away from it, you walked away from it. This is not something that I could walk away from. Now, all of you, I'm going to tell you a story. You know this story. It's replayed itself a million times in your cities. And, and this, is, this is the most poignant one that is reflective, just like Dr. Bell, you have that young man. In 1994, on Mother's Day, on Simon Boulevard, uh, in, a, in a playground named after... Dr. Davis, who was a great civil rights leader, and right across the street from where Dr. King started the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You got the neighborhood in a church, not like, not just like this one. Mother's Day, outside, everybody's barbecuing. Uh, there's a football game, and James Darby, a little boy who's eight years old, gets into a tussle with a little girl who's 14, and she gets hit with an elbow. Innocent. Unbeknownst to everybody, she was pregnant. She goes home right down the street. She got a little bit of a black eye. She goes upstairs. And she goes into a, a room, and a man named, uh, her older brother named Joseph Norfleet, who's 19 years old, sitting there, he's been drinking. And he's drinking with his mother's boyfriend that just came out of our maximum security prison, Angola. Who says to Joseph, you can't let your little sister be disrespected that way. And they were both drinking a little bit because it was Mother's Day. And Joseph said, yeah, you're right. Michael, his little 14-year-old brother, come with me. We're going to go take care of business. So they go outside, they get in the car, Joseph's driving, Michael's, I mean, uh, the, the, the uh, boyfriend's driving, Joseph's in the back seat with his little brother Michael, and Joseph decides to put a shotgun out of the window. At this point in time, James Darby and his mother are walking home with all the other families. He shoots the shotgun and he kills James, who's eight years old. All right, he's eight, he's dead. Joseph's 19. Now you know the rest of the story. Joseph is in jail for the rest of his life in a maximum security prison in Angola. He's 38 today. And Michael serves five or six years in jail 
and we've spent, I don't know, untold hundreds of thousands of dollars on Joseph, and James is dead. We lost the promise of James, and we lost the promise of Joseph, and that has replicated itself over and over and over and over again. And then the impact that it's had on each of those families and the trauma induced that, that each one of those families suffocated has killed generations of leaders. Now, when you extrapolate that across the United States and you talk about the numbers of people that are killed, forget about the numbers that are shot, you can increase that by like 15 by the people that are shot. You get a sense of how much this country's losing in terms of value that human beings could give us when we don't begin to value life in a really important way. And I just don't understand. This is just something I don't get. I just don't get it. Why the country's not stopped on this? Why it's like, hell no. We're not, we cannot talk about anything else until we talk about this first. And I have to be honest with you, and this is, I mean, he's as courageous as I am because he talks to audiences like I do, and we gotta be straight, that I don't find a whole lot of people running up behind us saying, yeah, let's go fix this first and not all the other stuff that we have to look at. Because you hear the kind of things you hear. Thugs killing thugs, let it be. Right, things will take care of themselves, let it be. It's not in our neighborhood, it's only 2%. It's way over there, it's not way over here. Stock market's up, unemployment rate's down, everything's cool. This is not the opioid crisis, it's that. And I just feel completely differently from that because I sense that in the United States of America, if we don't value every human being, if we don't go forward together, we don't get to go forward at all. And that's just kind of how I feel. And so that's the work that we started doing together, which is why I'm, I'm, just, I'm just in this. I'm, a, I'm in it, I'm staying in it, I'm not going anywhere. It just is kind of how I feel because I don't think I'm valuable if I don't value James Darby and the progeny that he left behind when he was killed. So William, you trying to say something? Mm. And then I'll go to you, Sean. Thank, thank you, uh, Mayor Landrieu, for, for those remarks, because I think, for me, that's at the heart of this conversation. And I, when I was speaking, I used the word reconstruction. And I, I was intentional about using that word. What we are focused on here is um, how do we help the people who are being impacted? And how do we stop kids from killing each other? And how do we help mothers stop crying and stop losing children. What we haven't gotten to yet in this conversation is when you use that word culture, is what has happened over the course of time in this country that will allow for someone who is not in that zip code or not in that community or who's not black, or even some people who are black and not in that zip code and in that community to say, that's not me, that's not mine. And we have a history in this country of dehumanization. And I've come to believe that when you succeed at completely dehumanizing a certain segment of the population, that you will cause even the most liberal among us to come to believe that whatever happens to them is their own fault and they deserve it. True. And when you have us separated nationally, cities are just microcosms of the national separation. And, and the reason I say mayors leading as CEOs of the cities is because you are the CEO of the city. But we've come to talk about something that's called a five-sector collaboration, which includes 
the government elected officials, which includes the faith-based community, which we lump into the not-for-profit sector, which includes the um, business sector, the philanthropic sector. But we also levy in there that fifth sector, which for us is the citizens, the people who live in these zip codes. And for us, the, the children and families who live in these zip codes are not just clients or people in need. They are members of this collaboration that we need to hear their voices. That's why you see so many young people in this conversation. And until we are ready and capable, and I say capable because I don't think it's just on the backs of the mayor, the CEO, to make this conversation real. Because there are people who live in these spaces and in those five sectors who are not ready to have this conversation. Because they still believe that the lack of education in these zip codes and these schools had nothing to do with, with how these children think and believe right now. There are people in this country and in these cities and zip codes who still don't believe that the long-standing lack of economic equity in this country and the fact that my generation after generation after generation couldn't meet their needs, but yet everything we see today on popularized reality TV, it's not everybody's reality, it's all the stuff that you can get and all the high-quality lives that you can have. But when you wake up every morning and you realize I have nothing. When you wake up every morning, did you realize that my brother didn't have a job, my daddy didn't have a job, my granddaddy didn't have a job, and there are no jobs in my neighborhood because they, most of the jobs that I could qualify for have been shipped overseas. When we are ready to challenge, not the conscience of America, because you can't really challenge, you can try, and you've been trying, but we still are headed down this national pathway. But when mayors can stand up and get a, some fellows, like we saw from the fifth sector today, <laughs> we need to get some fellows from the business sector who will believe this with us. We need to get some fellows from the not-for-profit sector who will believe this with us. We need to get some fellows from the philanthropic sector. We've got a couple of fellows sitting right here. We need to get fellows from all five sectors so that we can actually, in the places where we can, show people what can be done. And until we're ready to acknowledge that these black boys didn't just wake up one morning and decide that I'm going to be have depraved indifference and I'm just going to shoot people. Something has happened in the preparation of those boys to be decent human beings and it's not just the fault of their parents. And until we're ready to, address, to reconstruct and give the same opportunity in these areas that we give to children all across this country who don't end up shooting people when they have disputes. Because I don't care what your economic sector is, you, you have disputes. You get angry. But somehow other people have learned that there's another way. Somehow other people don't seem to have the same access to the tool called a gun as the kids in some of these communities. Just like how and people in other communities don't have access to the payday lending thing don't have access to the liquor store thing. And so the, the long-term end, and that's why 2025 is just a number, because I don't believe we're going to get to what I'm talking about right now in 2025. But sometime before we die, 
we need to be serious about reconstructing the opportunity that exists for kids in these zip codes, and we know which zip codes they are, because out of about 33,000 residential zip codes in America, 20% of those residential zip codes, 6,600 zip codes, and I can tell you where they are in, in, in Louisiana, I can tell you where they are in Philadelphia, 6,600 of those zip codes contain 80% of the children who are living in poverty. Out of those 33,000 residential zip codes, 20% of those zip codes came, contain 76% of all the adults in America, 25 years and older, who have something less than a GED. And they're the same zip codes. And so when you add poverty with no way out, when you add lack of education with no way out, you get lack of hope. And I read somewhere once that when you remove hope from a man or a woman, you render them a beast of prey. And depraved indifference is the action of someone who has become a beast of prey and is not necessarily their fault. They have a responsibility for every decision and every action that they take. But if we don't change and reconstruct the group that we're building, like we're trying to do with these fellows and others in cities in leadership like yours and, and the mayors all across this country, the 130 folks who've signed up, 130 out of how many cities? I just came from St. Louis. I just came from St. Louis the other day. And there are 63 census tracts in this country who have the highest per capita murder rate per 100,000. St. Louis has five of them. A higher rate than Chicago. So we can keep plodding along, and I applaud all of you for the leadership you've shown, but we've got to get fellows across all five sectors who are willing to stand up and say, I'm ready, I'm serious this time. Because I don't know how serious we've been nationally. I know how serious you 130 have been. But the reason I'm at this table, because I believe it's time. Mm. And, you know, I think that Dr. Bell and everybody up here is at this table also is because they love humanity and love black people. And we invest in what we value. And when I was at Open Society Foundation and had a large grant-making budget, I was very intentional of what I called breaking the OSF code and funding and directing resources to folks that love black people and that were going to do whatever it takes to invest in their community. So many, what I've seen in this field is that, you know, 10 years ago, there was scant dollars uh, for black men and boys, boys and men. And there still are, right? Even there's still scant. And people run, were not running to do this work. But all of a sudden, when there are dollars involved and organizations that had capacity, often not people of color-led organizations running to the table, getting grants, subcontracting those grants to people in the community that had relationships, we need to be able to, the whole resource thing, so hope is important, love is important, but we can have all of that, but if we don't have the resources and start 
stop talking in millions and start talking in billions because there's a billion dollar industry against black men and boys. There's a billion dollar industry that is looking to ensure that we are filling prison beds. Until we start talking in billions, we're still gonna be like shooting BBs at an aircraft carrier, right? And so as we move forward, we gotta understand that philanthropy alone is not gonna fix this. That we have got to develop an entrepreneurial social enterprise. Yes, we gotta work with the private sector, but we gotta find ways to fund our own freedom. And the other thing I wanna say that I think was really important, and I think that uh, uh, two things that Cities United was really fabulous with doing, right? Because yes, we need the CEOs of the cities, right? We need City Hall and we need the boardroom, but we also need the corner and we need the block. And Cities United has done a fabulous job first bringing in young folks like Jamira and Jordan uh, and Richard, but then these fellows right here, right? Because this is the pipeline, right? We may not see it on our timeline, let us pray and see that we see it in your, in your lifetime. And the other thing is this narrative change. The thing that struck me when we launched the campaign for black male achievement was folks cannot get their head, and this is even in the progressive halls of philanthropy, black male and achievement in the same sentence. You, you mean marginalized men? No, no, we're talking about black male achievement. You, it, no, you mean disconnected? Youth disconnected dads, and just shifting that 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 psyche, uh, the work that we've been able to do and invest in the implicit bias, and sitting around folks around the table, and I'll pass the mic. But the uh, disillusionment moment for me in philanthropy was sitting around the table when George Soros said, "I can go real deep with the campaign for Black Male Achievement." I can invest the same as my special fund for poverty alleviation, which was a 250 million four-year initiative. Now, folks weren't falling out of their chairs, but I literally felt spirits falling out of their chairs. And after the meeting, people were saying, what about fund equity? I was like, that wasn't an issue before this meeting, but now when you want to invest in black men and boys to that tune, now a lot of work to do, but it's not just going to be philanthropy. Yes, it's the five sectors, but we got to find some creative ways to create resource and revenues. And I know that Anthony and anybody else in this room that is uh, uh, responsible for raising dollars will tell you in a minute that they need another zero behind their budget. At least one. At least one. So let we have a we we're on time. So um, on a time deadline. So I have uh, this last question for all of you, and it's um, around a challenge to Anthony. <laughs> so you've, you started this, you've seen it grow. Um, talk about what needs to be still tealed and tended to, but what would you charge him with for the next five years? Nice. Um. And so you're talking to Anthony. Yeah, no, I, I understand. <laughs> um, before I get to Anthony, and I'll, I'll be very, very quick, um, I want to encourage folks. You heard, uh, and many of you maybe um, maybe you haven't heard Mayor Landrew in recent times, but I want to encourage you. Um, I think it's I'm sure it's up on uh, YouTube. Um, Antoinette 
was very, very direct and pushed him on this whole issue of race and before, <laughs> even before that, uh, on race and how does, he, how, how does he talk about these issues? And he told a little bit of his story. But what I want to encourage you to do is also go on the internet, and it's probably on YouTube. Um, if you want to learn something about Mayor Mitch Landrew and also how we talk about very sensitive issues, watch and listen to his speech and the bravery and the leadership around taking down Confederate statues in New Orleans. That's called leadership. But also read his book. Yeah. It's the title of the book where he talks about yeah. transformation awareness. Yeah. Yeah. That got you to that, so that point, right? So in the shadow of statues. Yeah, so that's one. This is, the second is, again, before, uh, before Anthony, um, to, the, to the young people here, participants, fellows, city leads and, and the like. Um, I don't know what folks say to you back home. Uh, they may think the work is fantastic. They may wonder why you do it, whatever the case may be. I just want to say to you, uh, from the bottom of my heart, I've been out of office now two and a half years, but like Matt Landry said, I'm not going anywhere. This is what I do uh, in a variety of ways uh, with a number of different partners. But Cities United uh, is the part of me that is still really about saving lives. I wasn't in the military. I was not a policeman. I was not a fireman. Uh, but if I did anything in 30 years of plus years of public life, 22 and a half uh, in elected office, the opportunity to help save someone's life, to make their life better, and that there are young people in Philadelphia who are alive today as a result of some of the things that we did. Um, it's never going to get any better than that. So is that why you, you wrote the book, Mayor, the Best Job in Politics? That is why I wrote it. And like that's why I'm not running for anything, because I've had the best <laughs> job already. Um, but there also comes a point in time where, you know, some of us have to know how to literally, figuratively move off the stage. We'll be out there, and we'll be there with you. But it's, time, it's your time. This is your time. This is your time, it's your moment, it's your generation, and we need to create enough space that you can grow and flourish. And the worst thing that ever happens is folks who don't know when it's time to kind of get out of the way, get off the stage, and let these folks rise up and do what they need to do in their way. Yeah. yeah, well, we need, just need a transition plan for the rest of us. Um, for Anthony, um, <laughs> the funny thing is, anything I suggest for Anthony to do, I'm going to end up doing. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, Mayor Betsy Hodges and I, we're going to end up doing part of it, so I got to be careful. Uh, be careful what you wish for. Um, you know, we talk about the 130, um, but I, w I would say this. Uh, we know from our political uh, world, uh, Mayor Landry, that you know uh, what did uh, Robert Jackson used to talk about the uh, the, the uh, uh, eggs and bacon. You know the, the 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 chicken is enthusiastic, but the hog is fully committed. There's support and there's enthusiasm, and then there's commitment, and so. One of the things that I know Anthony and 
team will be working on and I'll be working on and Mayor Hodges will be working on is about the 130. It's one thing to sign up. It's another thing to be fully committed. This is serious work. It's work. And I, you know, this idea that somebody said, well, you know, I know the organization's doing what it's doing, but, you know, I'm good. Uh, we're, we're working on our thing. Whether you had 20 homicides, 200, or 500, whatever it is that you're doing, let's be honest, there's a little more that can be done. If you had a fantastic year last year, 30%, whatever your number was, wouldn't you want it to be 31? Wouldn't you want it to be 40? Right? So constant driving of attention and focus because there's nothing more important than the lives of your citizens. And so getting that 130 to be 130 committed and 131 and 140 and 150 and 200, but really focus on that commitment and being strong about it and intentional. Sean talked about when we do these jobs, you know, a budget is more than numbers and words on a sheet of paper in a book. It actually should represent your values, of what you think is important, and where you're going to put those limited resources and making those tough decisions. And every department and agency will come, and they have a valid case to make why they should be funded at at least last year's number, if not more. I get that. But as Mayor Ruderio shared with us earlier today and, and this evening, when you're really intentional and you're really focused, you find those extra dollars to do those extra things. We always have money for what we want. We need to find the money for what we need. That's called leadership. Who wants to go next? I'll, I'll go. And, and, and why don't you also add, in terms of your, your uh, advice to Anthony, um, words for the young people, too. So my advice to Anthony is also my advice to uh, all the young people in, in, in the room. I um, just want to let you know that I love you. I love y'all. Uh, I'm going to first remind you what my wife reminds me all the time, and I'm glad to see you here with your wife, that uh, black male achievement begins and ends at home. The work will always uh, be there, right, and uh, take care of uh, a home. And I'm just gonna charge you with five questions that I've been grappling with. And this has less to do with Cities United, it has less to do with a logic model, has uh, less to do with how many mayors you get, but it has everything to do with uh, uh, Anthony. And uh, the first question, brother, is like, what are you gonna do about your purpose? The second question is, what are you gonna do about your power? The third is what are you gonna do about your privilege? Because you know you got some. The fourth, last two are kind of hard to answer and grappling. What are you gonna do about your pride? And the last question is, what are you gonna do about your pain? Because this is painful work, it's lonely work. We see you up here giving the speeches and, 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 and sound good, 
But those lonely, by yourself moments, painful moments that come with leadership, know that you are not alone. And what are you going to do with that? Love you, man. Dr. Bell, I'm going to let you clean. I'm going to let you clean that up, uh, back clean up. Just a, a couple of things. I'm, first of all, I'm glad I didn't, you didn't ask me those questions. <laughs> those, that was hard. Um, secondly, this, this man here is a, it was nice to me, but he, was a, he is and he, and he was a great man because he, like you, used his position, whatever your position is, to recognize the value in our fellow human beings. And when people that you know that you're responsible for, that you care about, are being killed, not only are they dead, but a piece of you dies too. Straight up, that's just how it is. And we're worse because of it as a nation, we're worse because of it as a community, a neighborhood, a family, a church family, whatever that might be. And so I ask the young people, as, as Mad Nada has passed the torch to you to understand that this is yours. You really do not have to be a mayor to change the world. Matter of fact, most mayors don't change the world. Some of us try to, some of us fail, some of us succeed better than others. I can tell you that in the work that I did as mayor, and, and, I, and I really do, if I must say so, my team of people did a terrific job, as your team of folks did, mayor yours did too, but there was nothing that was more important to me than this. This, this, this ate me up every day, all day. And so when you talk about pain, it really, really gets to you because when you view your fellow citizens as members of your family and you see them dead and you see the pain or you go to the funeral of a young girl, five years old, Brianna Allen, who had her guts blown out by an AK-47 and died in her daddy's arm, who himself was killed not long after that. It breaks you down over time and you begin to let it just kind of wear you down. My admonition to you, my hope for you is that you don't let it wear you down. Don't be daunted by people not paying attention, by the fact that they don't seem to understand or they seem to be distracted. This is the most important thing, and the work that we're doing is hard. And just because thousands and thousands of people are not showing up, it doesn't matter. So Anthony, I would just say keep going uh, and do not, be, do not be stopped because this is fixable. It's meaningful, Dr. Bell, you are completely correct. These young men, when you talk to them, they don't say it this way, but you know, essentially they would say to me, and you, you, you heard this, Mike, they say, may out here, it's kill or be killed, man. Nobody else is coming to take care of us. Nobody sees us. We left out here all by ourselves and we have to take care of business. In other words, what they're saying is they've been forsaken mm -hmm. and they have been. And in order for them to be able to act responsibly, what, what, what I finally got to was, you know what? You're exactly right. None of that's ever gonna change if we don't change the systems and the environment that these young men are in. And so the job doesn't get easier, it actually gets harder. Stopping the killing in its immediacy seems like you can do it right away just between the two kids that you have in front of you, but in order to stop it from happening to their little brothers and maybe to their little brothers, all of a sudden you got the hard things of changing the entire way that the United States of America sees black men. Now that is a chore that is gonna take us a long time. And even though it's lonely out there, I would just say keep going. Don't ever, ever, ever stop because lives depend on you and when lives are being taken, their lives are as valuable to, to us uh, as they should be and it's just critically important. So let's just keep going. Dr. Bell. Thank you. You know, I, I would start um, 
with also acknowledging uh, Mayor Landrew for uh, something that he did that I think is an example of where we need to get um, as a society. When you demonstrated the courage to publicly stand and offer an apology for those who come before you and for all that had been done to the people of African descent. And I believe that what was done to people of African descent was also done to people who were not of African descent because they were also impacted by it. And your willingness to stand on that platform, surrounded by those who were with you on your team, but to stand up and say, this is what we need to do as a nation if we are going to get to this next level. Because you can't undo or redo if you don't acknowledge that it was ever done. And so I want to just say thank you for, for that leadership. What I would say to the young people is that we talk a lot about Dr. King and others in the civil rights movement. But the civil rights movement was boasted by young people. There were young people who were standing in front of those fire hoses, who were standing in front of Bull Connor and his dogs. There were young people who were getting hit coming across the Pettus Bridge. And there were young people who continued to lead that march, and more young people came behind them. They're, these are young people that we're talking about right now. And we need to expand the voices of young people. One, those who are going to show that that's not me. Not all of us are doing those same things. I care about them, and I care about both the one who has been shot, and I care about the shooter. And let's change the conversation and the dialogue and take control of this conversation so that we can have it earnestly and not by a bunch of adults who are looking back and characterizing it in the way that we think about it. But because it has, these things have been here, but they weren't exactly the same when we were your age. Now, I won't tell you how long ago it was when these guys were your age. I'm much closer to your age than they are. <laughs> but um, I, I would encourage you not to, to believe that you have to do this alone and that your other friends have to wait until they are invited into a fellowship. Create your own fellowships. Move this conversation, move this dialogue, and move the action that needs to come from all of us, of which you are included in the all of us. You are the fifth sector. And we need to change the way the voice of the fifth sector is actually heard, respected, and regarded in the decisions that we're making going forward. Anthony, I would say to you, that recognize that we have not brought you into this at this level so you could fix this. Don't place this weight on your shoulder because that, 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 that wonderful strategist sitting next to you, to your right, wants you. And if you get so caught up in this, you won't be able to be for her which, and your children what you need to be. This will only get done 
to the degree that we get all five of those sectors and to the degree that we expand the 130 mayors, that we can get the kind of leadership that Mayor Rohiro and all the rest of you are showing. And so I would say to you, expand the voices in the government sector. Let's work on strategies to expand the voices in those other four sectors. Use us and use them as we go forward with this conversation about change. Because change won't come until we change. Change won't come until we start having a conversation with those young men and young women in our communities who are perpetrating violence against each other. For whatever reason it is in their heads, they were once somebody's baby. They were once someone who, who had their diapers changed and they were fed by someone else and they were looked at as, you are one day going to be the best thing that ever happened and with the way that you are going to change the world. I say that the opportunity is not yet lost for them to stand up and be those people that they were once believed capable of being. But we've got to change what people see. And I'm a firm believer that what you see when you look at me has more to do with what, who you think I am, what you believe I'm capable of doing, and how you will treat me than anything I could ever do or say. And we all need to ask ourselves the question, what do we see when we look at black boys and men? And what are we willing to do about our own sight and our own response to our sight? And how do we join the conversation and the action alongside Anthony so that Anthony is not charged with something that no single human being can do alone. Use us. Use me. I listened to the mayor. I, I took my leave. I knew that you were being hired to step up where I used to stand. And every time you ask me to step back up, I tell you, no, you go ahead and do it. But you can still use me. And so I say to you, keep doing what you're doing, and we're going to do this with you. So in the wrap-up, um, I do want to suggest to both the mayors, the teens, and the young people, there really are two books worth reading. And I know I was shamelessly plugging, but um, this is not a shameless plug. Um, I think you have the founders that let you see into their hearts and have been very open and, and vulnerable with you. Um, and that's, it's who they are. But please read Mayor Nutter's book, Mayor, The Best Job in Politics. And Anthony will talk later about how to get these because they are here. And Mayor Landrieu's book, In the Shadow of Statues. And in closing, I just want to read a quote that Mayor Landrieu has in his book um, from his speech um, when the monument was coming down. And it was a quote from um, Abraham Lincoln. 
with malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did and that it has motivated you to stay involved and get engaged. I'm also hopeful that you will join us this October the 20th through the 22nd for our eighth annual convening. Registration opens today. Please join us. Look forward to seeing you. Peace. I want to give a special shout out to our sponsor, Levi Strauss and Company. As a global iconic leader, Levi Strauss and Company knows that what they do and say matter. That's why they have pledged to support gun violence prevention efforts by providing grants to nonprofits who are working to end gun violence across the country. By elevating the stories of grassroots organizations who are successfully implementing violence prevention strategies in their communities and funding nonprofits who use digital tools and platforms to empower and lift up the voices of youth activists, Levi's believe that we can counter the gun violence epidemic in this country and make communities around this nation safer. To learn more about their goals, please visit their website at levistrauss.com. That's L-E-V-I-S-T-R-A-U-S-S dot com. <laughs>